The Productive Woman, Episode 454. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Productive Woman. My name is Laura McClellan, and this is a podcast about productivity for busy women. My goal is to help you find the tools and encouragement you need to manage your time, life, stress, and stuff so you can accomplish the things you care about most and make a life that matters. Well, welcome to this episode, and thank you so much for joining me. This week, we're continuing our recurring productive reading series, this time talking about key takeaways from Indistractable by Nir Ayal. You'll find more information and links in the show notes for this episode at theproductivewoman.com slash 454. So as I mentioned, we are continuing this week our Productive Reading Recurring Series. This is a series where periodically I'll talk about the lessons and key takeaways I find in books about productivity-related topics that I have found helpful and thought-provoking. We have included books by authors like Gary Keller, Charles Duhigg, Brene Brown, Courtney Carver, Jeff Sanders, James Clear, Michael Hyatt, Maura Neville Thomas, Joshua Becker, Greg McEwen, Cal Newport, and Dominique Saxe. And most recently, we talked about Laura Vanderkam's wonderful book, Tranquility by Tuesday, uh, in episode 420. We'll include links to all these past episodes of the Productive Reading series in the show notes for this episode in case you missed any of them and maybe are looking for a good productivity-related read. This week, though, I'm talking about some of my most important takeaways from an intriguing book by Nir Ayal called Indistractable. So who is Nir Ayal? I honestly had not heard of him before I heard him interviewed on another podcast and I was intrigued by the book title. So the book cover flap copy says this about him. Nir Ayal has lectured at Stanford's Graduate School of Business and Hassel Plattner Institute of Design. His first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, is an international bestseller. Ayal writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. His writing has been featured in Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, Time, The Week, Inc., and Psychology Today. So that's what I know about the man himself. Why did I read this book? Well, as I said, I heard him mentioned on another podcast and was intrigued by the book's title and premise. On the front flap of the book, it asks a key question that caught my attention. And this is the question, what could you accomplish if you could stay focused? And we've talked in past episodes about the difficulties we often have staying focused from time to time. And so that was an interesting question for me. The book front flap copy goes on to say that in this book, the author unpacks the hidden psychology driving us to distraction and explains why solving the problem is not as simple as swearing off our devices. I all lays bare the secret of finally doing what you say you will do with a four-step research-backed model. 
Indistractable reveals the key to getting the best out of technology without letting it get the best of us. Uh, The book is subtitled, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And I found that very intriguing. Don't we all want to figure out what gets in the way of making the life we want for ourselves and those we love? And as we've talked about in the past, the key to time management, so to speak, the key to accomplishing the things that are important to us really is managing our attention as much as anything else, our attention, our energy, and so on. So the book is set up in several parts, and the first two chapters explain what it means to become indistractable and the difference between traction and distraction. Basically, he says, traction draws you toward what you want in life, while distraction pulls you away. And then those chapters go on to address some of the problems of distraction, how it impacts our lives, our relationships, and our work. And interestingly, he talks about how simply removing our online tech doesn't solve the problem. And why? Because, as he says many times in the book, distraction starts from within. And so he says, among other things, being indistractable isn't about being a Luddite. It's about understanding the real reasons why we do things against our best interests. Why is it that we don't do the things we say we want to do or that we're going to do, basically? He goes on to say that distractions impede us from making progress toward the life we envision. He also says distractions will always exist. Managing them is our responsibility. And at the end of the day, he says, being indistractable means striving to do what you say you will do. In an interview with Ariana Huffington, he said this about what it means to be indistractable. Being indistractable means that you strive to do the things you say you're going to do. It doesn't mean that you never get distracted. That's impossible. We all get distracted from time to time. But it means that you're the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do, the kind of person who lives with personal integrity. And I really like that. That that very much resonated with me. After the first two chapters that are kind of introductory, uh, as I said, the book then is divided into several parts, one of them regarding mastering internal triggers. Part two is about making time for traction. Remember, traction is those things that, that move us toward what we want in life. Part three is called hack back external triggers. Part four, prevent distraction with hacks, P-A-C-T-S. Part five, how to make your workplace indistractable. Part six, which I thought was really interesting, how to raise indistractable children. And part seven, how to have indistractable relationships. Each chapter within the sections ends with a box that has three or so bullet point key takeaways from that chapter. And then all of those key takeaways, all of those bullet points are gathered together in a short section at the end of the book after the last chapter. An interesting approach. So he's kind of gathered all the kind of key important points from his perspective into that one section. And if you buy the book, 
you can go to a page on his website where by submitting evidence of the purchase, basically you just tell them where you bought it and what the receipt number is or something like that. I had ordered mine from Amazon, so I just put the order number in there. And when you do that, you can download some extra free resources, including a companion workbook, a schedule maker template, and several other things. I'll put a link to that website in the show notes or to the page where you can get the extra resources. And it's also in the book itself. So some of my key takeaways and favorite quotes from the book, uh, let's talk about those. The first one I think that really kind of came home to me as I read this book is that the true root cause of distraction, whatever's keeping us from focusing, isn't the stuff around us. As he says throughout the book, distraction starts from within. And his take on this is very different from many of the materials that I read. His take on uh, modern distraction and why we have a hard time focusing is different from a lot of the other books that I've read and articles and things. He says this, simply put, the drive to relieve discomfort is the root cause of all our behavior while everything else is a proximate cause. Unless we deal with the root causes of our distraction, we'll continue to find ways to distract ourselves. Distraction, it turns out, isn't about the distraction itself. Rather, it's about how we respond to it. And then he says, only by understanding our pain can we begin to control it and find better ways to deal with negative urges. Interestingly here, he says, solely blaming a smartphone for causing distraction is just as flawed as blaming a pedometer for making someone climb too many stairs. And I kind of smiled at that. So many of the, the articles and books and things that I've read about focus and staying focused and all that spend a lot of time sort of blaming our modern technology, the smartphone, the tablets, the all those sorts of things as being a source of distraction for us. And, and they are, but his point in this book is that it's not, it's not the phone. That's not the problem. The problem is within us or it starts within us. Why it's so easy to be distracted by those devices is internal. He says, distraction is always an unhealthy escape from reality. How we deal with uncomfortable internal triggers determines whether we pursue healthful actions of traction or self-defeating distractions. So the whole chapter four, which is called Time Management is Pain Management, is about this very element. He starts that chapter by reiterating that the motivation for diversion originates within us. As is the case with all human behavior, distraction is just another way our brains attempt to deal with pain. If we accept this fact, it makes sense that the only way to handle distraction is by learning to handle discomfort. And there's a lot in the book about this idea, you know, when he's talking about pain avoidance, so to speak, it's not necessarily physical pain. It's the the pain or the discomfort of a task that we're struggling with or just our internal emotions about what we're doing. 
And what he said here about the only way to handle distraction is by learning to handle discomfort reminded me of some of the things that uh, life coach Brooke Castillo talks about with respect to learning to feel emotions instead of what she calls buffering. That's her word for the things we do to distract ourselves from uncomfortable emotions. So there's some resonance there between what he's talking about and what she has talked about. He says, where does our discomfort come from? Why are we perpetually restless and unsatisfied? We live in the safest, healthiest, most well-educated, most democratic time in human history. And yet some part of the human psyche causes us to constantly look for an escape from things stirring inside us. He talks about that kind of in some detail about why it is we are always so dissatisfied, why we're always easily distracted by something other than what we're trying to do at the moment. He talks about some of the psychological factors that make satisfaction temporary, one of them being boredom and the fact that we don't like to be alone with our thoughts. One study that he cites in the book concluded this, people prefer doing to thinking, even if what they are doing is so unpleasant that they normally would pay to avoid it. The untutored mind does not like to be alone with itself. And I thought that was really good. And it's very true. We don't do well with silence and with being alone with our own thoughts. Another psychological factor that makes satisfaction temporary and therefore drives us uh, to distraction, so to speak, is something called negativity bias, which is defined as a phenomenon in which negative effects are more salient and demand attention more powerfully than neutral or positive events. We notice negative things, negative thoughts, negative feelings, negative events. And when he, I read this, it made me think of the line from the movie Pretty Woman, where she's sharing about how all her life people have told her basically that she was a loser. And when he says she's got a lot of good qualities, her reply to him is, the bad stuff is easier to believe. And that's a very telling line in the story, but there's psychological backup for it, this negativity bias. We notice negative things more quickly. And it has apparently a developmental reason, um, sort of evolutionary and across human development. The book says negativity bias almost certainly gave us an evolutionary edge. Good things are nice, but bad things can kill you, which is why we pay attention to and remember the bad stuff first. And I thought that was really interesting. Another psychological factor that makes satisfaction temporary and makes us more inclined to be distracted by the new and the novel is something called rumination, which is, he says, our tendency to keep thinking about bad experiences. A fourth one is something called hedonic adaptation, which he defines as the tendency to quickly return to a baseline level of satisfaction no matter what happens to us in life. He says all sorts of life events we think would make us happier actually don't, or at least they don't for long. 
you know, we work towards something, we're striving to get something that we think when this happens, I'll be happy. And then it happens and we're really happy for a while and very satisfied with life. But pretty soon we sort of returned what he talks about as this baseline level of satisfaction. And we start looking for something new and novel. He says evolution, that is our evolution as a species, as a human civilization, favored dissatisfaction over contentment. It was dissatisfaction that has driven people to discover and invent new things. He said dissatisfaction and discomfort dominate our brain's default state, but we can use them to motivate us instead of defeat us. And he also says, we must disavow the misguided idea that if we're not happy, we're not normal. Exactly the opposite is true. Our brains default toward, you know, I guess dissatisfaction, for lack of a better phrase, for looking for the new and the novel. So this whole concept of the source of distraction being within us and having the the psychological reasons why that's the case was very interesting to me and one of the key takeaways for me from this book. Uh, a second one is the importance of awareness and intentionality in creating the life we want and conquering the distraction that keeps us from doing what we say we'll do. How many times have we talked about this on this podcast, about the, the struggle to, to actually get ourselves to do the things that we say we, we need or want to do? In the book, one of the things he talks about is that we can be very intentional about how we use our time and doing so helps us to manage distractions. He said, you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it is distracting you from. So knowing what we plan to do can show us when things are kind of derailing that plan. Another thing he said kind of along those lines is the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. And I like that. So when you are sitting and watching TV or, you know, whatever it is you might be doing that might otherwise constitute wasted time, is it's not wasted time if that is what you plan to do at that moment. If, however, what you had planned to do, what you had said you were going to do is, you know, work, write a chapter of your novel or, you know, write that report for work, then it's wasted time because you are not doing what you said you would do. It has become a distraction. A third key takeaway from this book for me was there are very actionable steps that we can take to address the distraction that keeps us from making the life we want. And those steps, generally, he describes them as first reimagine the trigger for distraction. What what triggers you to look away from what it is you're doing? Uh, second one is to reimagine the task itself. And the third is to reimagine your own temperament, who you are as a person. So chapter six of the book teaches us to reimagine the internal trigger, starting from this premise that distraction starts from within, what are the triggers internally that lead us to seek a distraction or pay attention to a distraction? He says, while we can't control the feelings and thoughts that pop into our heads, we can control what we do with them. We shouldn't be telling ourselves to stop thinking about an urge. Instead, we must learn better ways to cope. Rather than trying to fight the urge, that is the urge to do something other than what we're doing right this minute that we had said we were going to do, 
Uh, Rather than trying to fight the urge, we need new methods to handle intrusive thoughts. So briefly, he shares this four-step process of reimagining these internal triggers. Step one is to look for the discomfort that precedes the distraction, focusing in on the internal trigger. What were you feeling? What uncomfortable feeling led you to suddenly your mind to wander toward whatever was distracting you? Step two, he says, is to write down the trigger Step three, explore the negative sensation with curiosity instead of contempt. Instead of beating yourself up for being distracted uh, for whatever feeling triggered that distraction, just be curious about it. Where's that coming from? You know, where's the truth in it? And step four in this process, he talks about uh, being aware of or beware of liminal moments, that is transition times, because when we're moving from one activity to another is when we can be very uh, prone to distraction. He says we can cope with uncomfortable internal triggers by reflecting on rather than reacting to our discomfort. So being curious, saying, hmm, I'm noticing as I sit down to write this report for work or, you know, whatever the thing is, I'm finding myself easily distracted because, you know, why? Why am am I easily distracted here? Well, I'm worried about my ability to get this report right, or whatever the distraction might be, figuring out and going, well, that's interesting. Why am I feeling that way? Um, And what can I do about it? So that's kind of one of the ways of dealing with these distractions. It starts with reimagining the trigger, and he goes into some detail about how to do that. Chapter seven of the book then invites us to reimagine the task, meaning whatever task it is that we're getting easily distracted from, by looking for the fun in it. And he talks about fun not necessarily being something pleasurable, but as something that really draws us in and captures our attention. He says, given what we know about our propensity for distraction when we're uncomfortable, reimagining difficult work as fun could prove incredibly empowering. Imagine how powerful you'd feel if you were able to transform the hard, focused work you have to do into something that felt like play. And as I said, play, as discussed in this book, isn't necessarily pleasurable. It's something that holds our attention, something we can get absorbed in. So the idea that he discusses in this chapter is to look at the tough task, and whether it's tough physically or tough mentally or whatever, in a new way that can turn it into something that will hold our attention. So focus in on the details of it. Uh, He says, instead of running away from our pain or using rewards like prizes and treats to help motivate us, the idea is to pay such close attention that you find new challenges you didn't see before. These new challenges provide the novelty, our, our brains like newness, novelty. These new challenges provide the novelty to engage our attention and maintain focus when tempted by distraction. And so he offers various techniques for doing this, things like timers, operating under time constraints, he says, is the key to creativity and fun. Then he says, fun is looking for the variability in something other people don't notice. It's breaking through the boredom and monotony to discover its hidden beauty. And this can be done with any kind of task. And he goes into some detail about how to do that with some very practical ideas for doing it. Then chapter eight discusses 
reimagining our own temperament, what kind of person we are, and what that means for how we show up in the world. He takes a very new perspective on willpower. A lot of what I've read in the productivity literature talks about willpower as being a finite resource and and teaches that we should create habits and routines that become automatic and thus avoid the need to exercise willpower so we can save it basically for when we really need it. But in this book, Ayal talks about the work of researchers like Carol Dweck, who we've talked about before, and others who offer an alternative view of willpower. For instance, he cites the work of one psychology professor at the University of Toronto who says, willpower is not a finite resource, but instead acts like an emotion. Just as we don't run out of joy or anger, willpower ebbs and flows in response to what's happening to us and how we feel. So these researchers see a link between temperament and willpower. And he says in the book, if mental energy is more like an emotion than like fuel in a tank, then it can be managed and utilized as such. And then he also says, when we need to perform a difficult task, it's more productive and healthful to believe a lack of motivation is temporary than it is to tell ourselves we're spent and need a break and maybe some ice cream. And I really liked this section of the book. It really gave me a lot of food for thought. This is really about our own mindset and our beliefs about who we are and what we're capable of. Uh, He says, and, and this is one of my favorite quotes from the book, he says, what we say to ourselves is vitally important. Labeling yourself as having poor self-control actually leads to less self-control. Rather than telling ourselves we fail because we're somehow deficient, we should offer self-compassion by speaking to ourselves with kindness when we experience setbacks. And this is so true. We are so hard on ourselves and we think when we are unable to stay focused or, you know, whatever, to accomplish the things that we want or need to, to accomplish, we blame ourselves as being somehow deficient. And he's saying that's not the case and that's not productive. It's not helpful to do it that way. He cites in this chapter several studies regarding the effects of mindset, saying several studies have found people who who are more self-compassionate experience a greater sense of well-being. An individual's level of self-compassion has a greater effect on whether they would develop anxiety and depression than all the usual things that tend to screw up people's lives, like traumatic life events, a family history of mental illness, low social status, or lack of social support. The good news is that we can change the way we talk to ourselves in order to harness the power of self-compassion. And I just thought this is really, really important. The importance of self-compassion, from what I read in this book, cannot be overstated. It is key to our ability to stay positive and move forward in accomplishing the things that are important to us. And so he says, if you find yourself listening to the little voice in your head that sometimes bullies you around, it's important to know how to respond. Instead of accepting what the voice says or arguing with it, remind yourself that obstacles are part of the process of growth. We don't get better without practice, which can be difficult at times. 
A good rule of thumb, he says, is to talk to yourself the way you might talk to a friend. Since we know so much about ourselves, we tend to be our own worst critics. But if we talk to ourselves the way we'd help a friend, we can see the situation for what it really is. Telling yourself things like, this is what it's like to get better at something, and you're on your way, are healthier ways to handle self-doubt. And I thought that's such a great advice and very much worth remembering. And, and finally, in this section, I love this. He says, you don't have to believe everything you think. You are only powerless if you think you are. And so applying this, as he does in the book, to this concept of dealing with distraction is really, really healthy and helpful. Uh, another takeaway for me was that we can intentionally structure our use of time to gain traction or progress toward what matters to us. And so he talks about the importance of scheduling our days, being intentional about what we're going to do with our time. Because as he says, when we don't, our most important asset, our time, is unguarded, just waiting to be stolen. If we don't plan our days, someone else will. And that's very true. So it's important to be intentional about it. And he encourages us to start with our values. He says, instead of starting with what we're going to do, we should begin with why we're going to do it. Values, he says, are how we want to be, what we want to stand for, and how we want to relate to the world around us. They are attributes of the person we want to be. We never achieve our values any more than finishing a painting would let us achieve being creative. A value is like a guiding star. It's the fixed point we use to help us navigate our life choices. So that's a starting point. And we've talked about that in the past, that starting with, you know, guiding principles or values helps us to make choices about what to do with our time and, and to do so purposefully. But he says the trouble is we don't make time for our values. We unintentionally spend too much time in one area of our lives at the expense of others. But, he says, if we chronically neglect our values, we become something we're not proud of. Our lives feel out of balance and diminished. Ironically, this ugly feeling makes us more likely to seek distractions to escape our dissatisfaction without actually solving the problem. So this section has a lot of really great, uh, very actionable suggestions about how to do this. So among other things, he suggests categorizing our values into various what he calls life domains, such as self, relationships, and work, noting that these domains, as he says, outline the way we spend our time. They give us a way to think about how we plan our days so that we can become an authentic reflection of the people we want to be. Because, he says, in order to live our values in each of these domains, we must reserve time in our schedules to do so. So starting with our values and what's important, who we want to be in each domain of our lives, then we can make decisions about what to do with the time we have. And he talks a lot about what he calls time boxing. That is allocating your time to the various activities in the domains that you've identified this is important, he says, because it doesn't so much matter what you do with your time. Rather, success is measured by whether you did what you planned to do. 
he goes on to talk about how to do that. He says, to create a weekly time box schedule, you'll need to decide how much time you want to spend on each domain of your life. So being intentional about it, again, so important. He encouraged us to ask ourselves, how much time in each domain would allow you to be consistent with your values? And as a, a side note, he offers blank templates in his book and on his website for doing this, for allocating time in your week. And then an important piece of this process, he says, is to schedule about 15 minutes each week to reflect on and refine your schedule by asking two questions. First, when in my schedule this last week did I do what I said I would do and when did I get distracted? And the second question is, are there changes I can make to my calendar that will give me the time I need to better live out my values? Really good food for thought questions that you can think about for just 10 or 15 minutes and really help you make decisions about what to do in the coming week. Along with all of this, he has chapters that offer very practical suggestions for dealing with external distraction triggers, work interruptions, managing emails and group chats, making more productive use of your smartphone. So he doesn't say get rid of it, you know, or put it away, but how can you use it productively? He has a great chapter on dealing with meetings to make them more productive. And he has some chapters on using what he calls PACTS. Uh, agreements ahead of time to keep yourself on track toward doing what you say you'll do. And then he has some great information and tactics for making your workplace more productive, uh, for being less distracted and more present in your relationships, and for helping your children become indistractable. So there's some really good stuff in the book. I guess for me, the key message of this book is the one I've mentioned before, that distraction starts from within, from our instinctive drive to avoid discomfort. We are not, however, at the mercy of our environment or even of our subconscious instincts. This is what he teaches. We have the power to take control of both, to make conscious decisions about our use of time, energy, and attention, and make space in our lives for traction, for actually making progress toward the life we envision for ourselves. And I think that really sums up the, the key core message of this book that he fleshes out in all these various chapters with some very practical things that we can do to accomplish this. There's obviously a lot more to this book than what I've mentioned here. What I like best about it is that it is so thoughtful and backed by references to research and studies. He provides a lot of resources, including step-by-step -step processes and questions to ask yourself that make it totally doable to become indistractable in every area of your life. I really love what he says in the book's conclusion after telling a story about an interaction he'd had with his young daughter about superpowers. She had asked him, you know, what superpower would you like to have? His daughter said the superpower she wanted is to always be kind to other people. And he said this, I took some time to think about her answer. I realized that being kind was not a mystical superpower that required a magical serum. We all have the power to be kind whenever we want to be. 
We simply need to harness the power that's already in us. The same is true for being indistractable. By becoming indistractable, we can set an example for others. In the workplace, we can use these tactics to transform our organizations and create a ripple effect both in and beyond our industries. At home, we can inspire our families to test these methods for themselves and live out the lives they envision. We can all strive to do what we say we will do. We all have the power to be indistractable. That really, I guess, brought it home for me, and I really, really liked that. That was something I kind of went back and read a couple of different times. In the show notes, I'm going to also share a link to a video of a presentation near IAL did covering some of these topics, as well as links to a couple of other podcasts, one of them hosted by Greg McEwen, author of Essentialism, on which near IAL was a guest talking about how to be indistractable. So if you want a little more directly from the source, so to speak, uh, those links will be in the show notes. So those are some of my key takeaways from a book that was very thought-provoking. I'd love to know what you think. Have you read Indistractable? If so, what did you think? Are you implementing any of his recommendations? Please share your takeaways with us. If you haven't read it, what's a productivity-related book that you've read recently you'd recommend for the rest of us? I'd love to hear from you on that. You can share your answers to those questions or your thoughts on this topic or the book in the comment section of the show notes for this episode, which you'll find at theproductivewoman.com slash 454. That's also where you'll find links to his books, to his website, uh, to some of these other resources that I mentioned. You can also post a comment or question on the Productive Woman Facebook page, or if you're a member of the Productive Woman Community Facebook group, you can share your thoughts there as well. As always, if you prefer to share your thoughts with me privately, I'd love to hear from you. You can do that by emailing your questions, comments, or suggestions to me at feedback at theproductivewoman.com. And that, my friends, is it for this episode of The Productive Woman. I thank you so much for spending this time with me. I hope you felt like it was worthwhile. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. So until next time, remember, extend grace to each other and to yourself and go make your life matter. Mm -hmm.